0: So um, children who are age four through third grade can go to children's chapel um, out that way, in a fellowship hall. Um, if you have a Bible with you, you can to, uh, uh, so you can open to the book of Amos. We'll look at chapter nine this morning. Amos chapter nine. We're finishing the book of Amos. Um, are you relieved? I, I am. Um, just to let you know where we're going um, after this so this fall we're starting up some new things Um, probably going to start up home groups again there's been enough interest in that that uh, we might have two or three uh, groups meeting around the area Um, so look for more details on that probably start that in September also again I mentioned earlier during the announcements uh, September 9th um, starting up a Sunday school And in conjunction with that, on September 9th, um, I'm going to start a new series on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer uh, all the way up until Advent, so we're going to just take a phrase at a time for the most part and um, go through that, and hopefully that'll uh, work really well with what the children are uh, learning in Sunday school or potentially memorizing the Lord's Prayer um, so that they can uh, follow along in church with that. so that's September 9th. We've got a few weeks between now and then. And um, during that gap time, we're going to look at some psalms. I think I've, uh, I'll have i just confess right now. Um, sometimes it's difficult for me to pick one or two sermons or three or four sermons to do at a time. I like these larger blocks of uh, series. So my plan, I think, is to just schedule out larger series as long as uh, we can. So in September, we'll do the Lord's prayer, and then we'll have something for Advent, and then we'll probably look at the Ten Commandments early next year until Easter and etc. cetera, and there will always be one or two Sundays or whatever where there's a gap, and we're just going to do Psalms <laughs> during those those gap Sundays, um, so we're just going to start with Psalm 1 next week, and maybe that'll give us 150 weeks worth of uh, gap sermons, <laughs> um, and I'll have to figure something else out, <clears throat> but um, yeah, so we'll look at Psalms uh, for for a few weeks until September 9th. Uh, But today, we're looking at Amos for one last time, and finally, he has some nice things to say uh, right there toward the end. Uh, This book has been all about uh, God's judgment falling on his people, on the northern kingdom of Israel, for their decadence, for their their wrong enjoyment of the prosperity that they have, um, for their injustice, their abuse of power, in their relationships and their, uh, their pretentious worship, um, the f- false peace that they've convinced themselves that they have with God. Um, and in fact, most of this chapter is still about that, still about God's judgment falling on his people for these things. Um, <clears throat> but it does take a remarkable turn there uh, right at the very end, those last few verses, and that's pretty refreshing. So we'll probably spend most of our time uh, looking at that this morning uh, because we have looked uh, for this whole summer at those individual topics of uh, prosperity and power and peace. Um, uh, and so uh, the point of this chapter, and I think the point of the, the sermon will be uh, simply put, um, if, if you believe the gospel, then God has something better in store for you than, than you could possibly deserve or even imagine. <laughs> if you believe, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then, uh, then God's plan for your future is incredible. And... Um, uh, and you don't deserve it and that's uh that's why it's called his grace uh, the gospel the good news for people like us so let's pray and then um, then we'll read amos nine father we pray as we always do as we come to your word uh, for your help we need your spirit to um, change our hearts to illuminate um, our minds this uh, this text would be foreign to us, entirely difficult to, uh, to understand, but even more than that, um, we would rebel against it. Uh, we, we would rebel against your every word if uh, we were left to ourselves, and uh, we pray that you would help us to receive your word and even to be changed by it into the likeness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them, and if they hide my from my sight at the bottom of the sea, There I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens... And founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftar, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. "'except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob,' declares the Lord. "'For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations "'as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. "'All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, "'who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. "'In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen "'and repair its breaches.'" And raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, like I said, uh, this chapter starts off pretty rough still. Um, It's the final vision that the Lord gives to Amos of the coming judgment, right? We've talked about this judgment, and throughout the book you see actually a couple forms of judgment. You see uh, the idea of an earthquake being repeated and uh, the idea of um, uh, being conquered and slain and taken into exile and captivity by Assyria, and those are the forms that God's judgment takes. Uh, But there's no more metaphor here, right? There's no more metaphor to decipher. This one's easy to figure out, uh, just straight up God destroying the sinful kingdom, starting with the uh, counterfeit altar in their counterfeit temple. Remember that uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had set up these worship sites because they wanted to have nothing to do with the southern kingdom anymore, and that's uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem was where the true proper temple was. God had uh, ordained would be the place of his meeting with his people uh, well, they set, set up an alternative worship site and set up their uh, idols there, actually. Um, and it's in this temple, this, uh, this false counterfeit temple, and by that altar that uh, this vision uh, comes to Amos. <clears throat> and it could be that the means that he's talking about here um, in this vision of uh, destruction is uh, an earthquake, that God's going to use an earthquake, as we've seen that mentioned a few times before in the book of Amos. But Basically, it doesn't matter. We're going to make no mistake. God is the one who is uh, causing the destruction. He's the one who shouts out, as the Lord of hosts, which is uh, to say the Lord of armies, uh, angelic armies, and really the, the, the master of all the armies of the earth, um, God is the one who gives the order to strike the, the capitals, smite the capitals, God is the one causing the destruction. The capitals of the pillars are being struck and shattered. And where is the capital on a pillar? Um, it's at the top, right? Um, it's, it's kind of impossible to reach to the top if you're just a mere human being to strike that and make it all fall down, uh, shaking the very thresholds of the, the floor because you've struck it so hard. <clears throat> their false temple, the center of their pretentious worship, the thing that symbolized for them, this peace that they thought they had with God, which was, was a false peace and condemned by God, is being dismantled from the top down. It's a sign of divine activity, just like the, um, when the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom uh, at the, the crucifixion of Jesus in the New Testament. <clears throat> and those who, the um, text says, escape death by earthquake will experience death by sword. There will be no escape. Verses 2 through 4, you can't dig a hole deep enough. You can't fly far enough into outer space. Um, you can't hide at the top of a mountain or at the bottom of a sea. God's judgment is inescapable, and it's, it's devastating. And then in verses 5 and 6, um, we see that God is able to accomplish his will. Right? No one can thwart his will. He's able to accomplish his will, and in this case, that means he's able to execute his judgment uh, because he is the master of the earth and the heavens. Everything in creation uh, obeys him. Uh, and it says, the Lord is his name. Uh, that is, uh, Yahweh is his name. You see, in the most English Bibles um, have printed the word Lord in, uh, in small caps, the, where the text uh, stands out. Wherever that happens, um, it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's proper name right? um, The name by which he has revealed himself to his people. Um, Now, this mention of God's covenant name here, Yahweh, Yahweh is his name, should bring to memory the major episode when God revealed himself uh, by this name to his people who were in slavery in Egypt early in the chapters of Exodus. Um, He revealed himself as their savior, right, as their redeemer, as their defender, Yahweh is the God of the Exodus. It's the defining moment in Israel's history when God demonstrated his great power to save them from their enemies. And the crafty Israelite, hearing about uh, God's judgment here, might say, Hey, wait, you can't destroy us. I mean, look at our history. We're your special people that you delivered out of Egypt, remember? Um, But God says in verses 7 and 8, you're no different to me than anyone else. You're just like the Kushites to me. Um, the Kushites were um, from northern Africa. they Ethiopians, um, different location than current uh, modern-day Ethiopia, so it's a little strange. Uh, Nubian kingdom, that's, um, that's the Kushites. So these, these remote people, you're, are you any different than these Africans? Um, uh, you're just like the Kushites to me. Yeah, I moved Israel out of Egypt, but you know what? I did that with the Philistines too. I took them out of Caftar, which is probably uh, in the Mediterranean, one of the isles like Crete. Um, <clears throat> I took the Philistines out of there and planted them in Palestine, and, and I took the Syrians out of Kerr. In and of yourselves, you don't deserve my favor and my protection. You're just like every other nation. You can't just claim, uh, claim immunity from judgment because you're Israel, and that transitions to us. Do you think that, um, that just because you're a baptized member of the church that you are exempt from God's judgment? Uh, the Old Testament says over and over again that God has not granted special status to his people because of who they are, right? but because of who he is. It's entirely because of his mercy that they're granted special status. It's true, he is the God of the Exodus. He is the deliverer of his people. But what did the Exodus mean for the unrighteous Egyptians? It meant judgment and death, right? the total destruction of Egypt's army. Yahweh is the God of grace, and Yahweh is the God of righteous judgment. Now, uh, side note, you get a hint of his grace here in, uh, in verse 8, where he says, I will destroy the sinful kingdom from the face of the earth, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. Right, there will be a remnant. But he will judge all peoples with righteousness, including his own people. And that judgment is discriminating, right? That's the picture that you get here with the sieve, um, the sieve uh, is, was an instrument. Uh, when they would harvest the grain, they'd bring it into the, the threshing floor, they'd break it up, right? So that you've got the good uh, kernels of grain and then you've got the chaff and the husks and you've got dirt and twigs and other things like this, pebbles. And, um, and they'd, they'd put it in a sieve and they'd shake the sieve and it would fall through the screen. The, the good grain would fall through the screen and all the trash would stay up in the sieve. And that's why it says, no pebble shall fall to the earth, right? God's uh, discriminating judgment is perfect. He discriminates between people. We see that in the New Testament in the Gospels. um, The day of judgment comes and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who's judging all peoples, separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep to his right hand and the goats uh, to his left. So the picture of the sieve is a picture of discriminating judgment on God's part, and it implies that there's actually good grain, right, that there's, uh, that's, that's falling through the sieve and being kept. But God asserts that all the sinners of my people, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Uh, the point of th- these verses is this. Don't say that. <laughs> Don't say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Don't be in denial about your sin and the consequences of your sin in the presence of a Holy God. Right? Uh, Alec Motyer, a commentator, says that his edict is not against sinners as such, right, the broad category of sinners, but against one particular category of sinner who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. These look into their past, and they see nothing to make them alarmed nothing in their past, to give rise to a calamitous judgment from God to overtake or catch up with them. Likewise, they look into the future and they find no cause for alarm. They're sinners, but they're not aware that sin constitutes a threat or needs a remedy. Jesus was always talking about this uh, with the religious leaders of his day. They thought that they were the picture of spiritual health and vitality, didn't they? Um, but he knew, that the, he knew their pretensions, and he knew, uh, he knew their injustices. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners, to repentance. And he said, blessed are not those who really have their act together spiritually, who really don't have much problem with sin, um, who don't need to worry about my judgment. No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the ones who who lament their sin, their rebellion, their weakness. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives his kingdom to people who know their desperate need for his mercy rather than to those who think that they're doing just fine. Uh, Those who think that they're doing just fine without his mercy are in denial and do not think that disaster will overtake or meet them, but God says it will if you remain in denial about it. And that's one reason why we have a, a regular time of confession of sins at the beginning of the service each week. Um, yes, it's meant to remind us of the great forgiveness that we have in Christ. And it also serves as an opportunity to stop the denial. <laughs> an opportunity to acknowledge your need of forgiveness, an opportunity to admit your spiritual bankruptcy. So um, now for the good part of this, this passage. For those who do confess their sins and their faults to God, who appreciate and trust in his grace toward them, he has promised an incredible restoration. In the last uh, verses of this book, we see the reversal of the fortunes of the people, the, the remnant of God's people, those whom he spares by his grace, those who trust in his salvation. It's not just the reversal of the wrath, the condemnation that they've, um, they've earned themselves. It is the complete reversal of the, the curse that has hung over this whole world since the beginning of human history. That's what you see in this passage. Do you remember... Um, Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, God um, cursed them and cursed the whole world. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because um, because humanity rebelled against God and chose proud autonomy from God, this whole world has been shattered and broken for thousands of years. When we became enemies of God, because of our sin, uh, this, this whole world turned hostile toward us and has resisted us and has threatened us. Right? We suffer broken relationships with God, because of our sin. We suffer broken relationships with each other because of our sin. Injustice is rampant in the world because of our selfishness. We labor with toil and sweat to wring a living out of the ground, and often we can't even do that. Our our strength gives out, drought and disease destroy crops and livestock, fires rage, wars rage, economies collapse, thieves steal, tragedy strikes. Sometimes these are the results of our own sin. Always they are the results of the curse that hangs over this world because of humanity's sin, right? And God has promised to put a stop to it all. Romans 8, which uh, we read for our New Testament reading, Paul writes that the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In Amos, the the promises um, that relate to this from Romans chapter 8, they come in the context of the judgments that Amos has already been talking about up to this point. Throughout his prophecy, God has been condemning the decadence the injustice, the pretentious worship of his people, the northern kingdom of Israel thought themselves the premier nation and so, um, so the wrath of God was coming to them in the form of a pagan nation a Gentile nation coming to wipe them out it says uh, earlier in the book in chapter 5 because you trample on the poor you have built houses hewn, of hewn stone but you shall not dwell in them You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. So the curse is this. The Assyrians, whom you despise for their ungodliness, are going to come and conquer you and kill you and remove you from the land and live in your houses and drink the fruit of your vineyards. But the promise of God, in his grace, it reverses the curse. And he says this. You will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. What does that mean? Uh, Edom is the symbol of the hostile foreign nations uh, who are constantly at war with God's people. Uh, The promise is that their enmity will cease and that they and people from all nations will be brought into the fold of the people of God and called by God's name. Being called by God's name in the Old Testament is an indicator of intimacy with God. It's an indicator of being given a new identity by God. When you marry, the bride is called by the groom's name. It's a custom that we still usually observe in our culture. When you have children or when you adopt children, they're called by the father's name, by the family name. It's a picture of being called into God's family, being given a new identity, a new relationship with him, and it's given to people from Gentile nations, from all nations. And we experience this in baptism as the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is applied to us. It's set on us, placed on us. And we experience this as Gentiles according according to this promise uh, from Amos 9. In Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament, the The Jerusalem council has gathered, and James quotes this text as proof that God had, in fact, begun the reconciling of the nations and called Gentiles to a place of equality with Jews among his people. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes, Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel the curse that hangs over our world brings division and suspicion and hatred and war between peoples and the gospel brings reconciliation and unity unlike anything this world has to offer and behold the days are coming when all enmities and all wars will cease all those who are called by God's name will live in peace there will be no more fear and no more hatred The ancient Israelites had also been told that they would lose their homes, that they would suffer exile from their land, but the promise of God reverses that curse in verses 14 and 15. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. In verse 15, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. So you're not just going to rebuild your houses, God says. You're going to rebuild ruined cities. What's the difference between a house and a city? (laughs) Is it your house? You're there by yourself. Cities, you're there with multitudes of people. You're going to inhabit these cities together in peace and in true justice. And the security that you are so longing for, that you are so desperate for by building your houses and fortifying them, by building your strongholds, I'll give you that security forever. Never again will you be exiled Never again will you be cast away from my presence. No one will ever threaten you with destruction or captivity again, says the Lord. And the ancient Israelites had also been told that they would not enjoy the fruit of their labors, the vineyards that they had planted, right? You've planted these vineyards. Someone else is going to enjoy them. Uh, But the promise of God reverses that curse too. Verses 13 and 14, the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So this is a picture of the the lavish and spontaneous abundance, almost unimaginable to people of that day or any day, really. Um, Commentator David Hubbard says it, It took virtually all the time and effort of those who worked the land just to survive. And here they'd be told that um, the ground that they worked so hard to scrape a living out of, the ground would be so fruitful that as soon as the harvest came in, it would be plowed again. And if Cheryl Bowden were here, the farmer among us, she'd tell you that's a no-no, right? You let the ground rest after the plant has grown and you harvest it, you let the ground rest for a season and then you can sow your seed. Then you can till it and, and get another crop growing. As soon as the harvest comes in, it'll be plowed again, right? The plowman should overtake the reaper. As soon as the seeds are sown, the grapes will be ready to be turned into wine. Right now, because of the curse, we see weeds grow that way right? Weeds are just about the fastest things to grow. You've probably seen how fast they can grow. I spent the other night, um, a couple hours pulling weeds. Um, One day there's nothing there, and the next day there's a tall yellow dandelion waiting to spread its evil seed (laughs) everywhere around your yard, right? And that's because of the curse that weeds grow that fast. Behold, the days are coming when vineyards will grow that fast, even the inaccessible rocky terrain of mountains will produce so much fruit that the wine just flows. This is a picture of the bounty. This is a picture of, of work without the curse hanging over the land anymore, right? Work when the world works the way that it's supposed to work with us and not against us because all things have been set right by God. It's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It may surprise you, maybe, to, to think that, um, that work will be a part of that life, a part of that existence, but work was a part of the life before the fall, right? Before the curse. Work isn't something that we have to suffer as punishment in and of itself. Uh, work is something that we were made to do, and it's been made um, incredibly difficult by our rebellion and by the, the curse uh, that hangs over us because of the fall. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we're all going to have jobs. I'm going to have to get a real job. (laughs) But work without the curse will be delightful. We'll get to drink the wine of our vineyards and eat the fruit of our gardens. We'll design things and build things and make beautiful art. We'll get to use our minds and our bodies how God intended and in a world that's set back the way that God meant it to be. No more painful toil just to try to survive. There will be real, eternal prosperity. Not the kind that comes at the expense of other people, at the neglect of the poor, at the neglect of social justice due to the abuse of our power or the lack of love for other people. All of those things will be fixed. Uh, it, It really is impossible for us even to imagine what it'll be like because the effects of the curse are so pervasive in this life that we just can't comprehend life in a world free of the curse. But that's the promise right? from God himself. Thus declares Yahweh who does this. And how does it come about? Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So a booth is an agricultural term. It's a rural term, not an urban term like houses or uh, cities. A booth uh, is a term for a a temporary structure that's set up to provide um, shelter from the heat or from the elements. Um, The ancient Israelites had a festival, the Feast of Booths, where they celebrated God's provision for them in the wilderness. Remember after they had come out of uh, Egypt, they were wandering after the exodus, wandering in the wilderness, and they set up these booths that protect them from the sun, and God provided all things for them. It was a simple life of total dependence on God for his provision. Um, And so the, the booth of David is a picture of God's provision of shelter. And it comes in contrast with the great houses and fortresses and strongholds that the people thought would provide them shelter from their enemies, but their chief enemy had become God himself. And as we saw earlier in the chapter, no one can hide from his wrath. You, can't, uh, you cannot hide from the coming judgment of God. He was going to tear down their strong houses, and in their place for protection from his great anger, he would provide a simple, humble, shelter from the line of david so they collapsed the the fallen davidic dynasty botched everything their kings had loved decadence and they'd committed injustice and they'd set up false worship but a humble king would come and set everything right he would restore true prosperity and joy he would reinstate real justice and true worship And he would provide the only hope of shelter, the only hope of salvation from God's righteous judgment. There is nowhere else to hide, no other refuge than the booth of David, which God himself would raise up. Commentator Herman Veldkamp says, in this great universe, there is but one safe place, Golgotha. Jesus, the Son of God himself, the descendant of David, the true King, is the shelter we need from God's judgment. He never sinned, yet he became sin for us to bear the punishment that we deserve on the cross once and for all so that as we are in him by faith, as we seek our shelter and our refuge in him, we become the righteousness of God. And it's because of this exchange... It's because of his sacrifice that we're called sons and daughters of God, that we're called into his family, we're called by his name. It's because of the booth of David, our shelter, which God raised up for us, that we're spared from getting what we deserve. And instead, we get the promise of the complete reversal of the entire curse that's hung over this world for human history. Because of Jesus, we have a sure hope that our bodies will be raised after we die and this whole world will be renewed and restored to perfection for our everlasting life and security and peace and joy and this is guaranteed to you by God himself the final word is thus says the Lord your God not because of who you are not because of anything you've done but because that's who he is that's who he has revealed himself to be And that was what Jesus came to the earth to accomplish. And he can accomplish all of his will. He never fails. And that is good news for us and for our futures. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we do not deserve a glorious future with you in the new heavens and new earth. And yet... You have uh, done everything to assure us that this is, in fact, uh, what's in store for us who uh, place our faith and our trust in you. And so we pray that you would uh, encourage us and assure us of your great love and of the great promises that are bought by your own blood. And we pray that as we are encouraged and assured of your, your love and your promises, that you would be lifted up among us, that your sacrifice would be Appreciated in its fullness, that you would make us a truly thankful people, a truly humble people before your mercy, and a people that truly proclaim uh, your grace and your glory to all the nations, so that we would be a part of the process by which you are calling all the nations by your name, people from every tribe and tongue and nation um, being gathered into your family, so that we might have a a glorious celebration at the end of history when. You, um, when you return to earth in judgment, yes, but also to reinstate uh, the perfect world that, uh, that you've brought forth by your grace. We pray all of this in your name and for your Father's sake. Amen.